listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 204. Today, we're going to talk about the issue on everyone's mind, I'm sure. What the hell is going on with the Postal Service and why is it being dismantled? The battle for the post office, as you'll hear on today's show from postal workers themselves, isn't new. But first, we're going to bring you some news from around the world. And just a reminder, if you haven't signed up yet, before we get started, we do have a kind of shiny new Patreon where you can support our work if you happen to still have money coming in. You can find us at patreon.com slash belabored. And thank you to everyone who donates both the Patreon page and through Descent at descentmagazine.org. Now on to the news. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, in episode 193, I spoke with graduate student workers from the University of California system who had been part of a wildcat strike for a cost of living increase in their wages. The students had originally refused to turn in final grades in the winter of 2019 as part of their demand to bring their pay rates up to a livable standard. The students reported spending 50 to 70 percent of their pay on rent. With no action from the university, they escalated to a full strike in the spring semester, and then many of those students had been fired from their teaching positions for taking part in the strike. The conflict also involved heavily militarized policing back when students were still on campus, and a whole bunch of other conflicts that you can hear about if you listen to that episode. Um, But today we've got good news for you. For those of you who hadn't heard already, 41 of those fired students have been reinstated. As a result of a settlement between the university and the Graduate Workers Union, United Auto Workers Local 2865, the union agreed to drop an unfair labor practice charge with the California Public Employment Relations Board in exchange for providing those students a path to reinstatement. It is important to note, of course, that 41 is not all of the students who were not given new appointments and that at least one student is still facing a two-year suspension. But in addition to the reinstatement, these students have won a $2,500 housing stipend, not the full amount they were calling for, but some acknowledgement that they were being underpaid and rent burdened, as well as guaranteed work for next semester and an extension of funding for another quarter, meaning more time to complete their graduate degrees. What's the lesson from all of this? As one of those workers, Veronica Hamilton, told Vice, this is a testament to the power of collective action. We were on the picket line for five weeks. We withheld grades for five months. We had a national boycott going, email campaigns, received letters from around the world, and now we have our jobs back. The COVID-19 crisis in Michigan has hit nursing homes particularly hard, reflecting a disturbing pattern of the virus ravaging skilled nursing facilities across the country. But in the wake of about 2,000 deaths of nursing home residents and workers across Michigan, Detroit's nursing home workers recently decided not just to mourn, but to organize. Earlier this month, SEIU Michigan announced that about 1,600 workers in 18 nursing homes across Detroit would go on strike starting Monday, August 17th. But just ahead of the strike date, two major developments happened. First, a court issued a seven-day restraining order aimed at halting the strike. Then, Governor Megan Whitmer sent letters to the nursing homes urging that they bargain in good faith going forward. On the eve of the strike, SEIU agreed to suspend the strike for 30 days as negotiations continue. The workers are outraged at what they see as inadequate safety protections and severe staffing issues incompetent management, and poverty wages. Most of the nursing homes involved in the planned action are for-profit, owned by Siena and Villa. The workers who plan to strike, representing certified nursing assistants, cooking, housekeeping, office, and other staff, also say that they are suffering from structural racism throughout the sector. 
in which a mostly Black workforce is disproportionately exposed to COVID-19 and other public health threats. Going forward, the strike has been postponed for now, but the struggle continues. I spoke with Monique Shields, a certified nursing assistant, about why she wanted to go on strike. And she spoke to me a few days ahead of the strike, so before it was delayed. The reason why we are going on strike Monday is for equality, better opportunities, more money, better PPE equipment that we have to wear going to work. And I want better care for the residents. Because we chose to go into the field. We chose to go into the field because of the love that we have for people, our elderly. So without them, we don't have a cause. So since we have a cause, we're going to stand up there and we're going to fight for myself or the other seniors across the board and for our residents. And it's really been hard. These last couple of months, because like I said, the pandemic came and it changed the entire world. No one was prepared for what we're dealing with. So at the end of the day, us frontline workers who never got recognized, it was always the doctors and the nurses in the hospitals. What about the seniors that's in these nursing homes every day taking care of someone else's loved one and making them your loved one. So to go to work every day and see a resident that you have been taking care of for years, all of a sudden get sick and then they die. Or we had one resident that left. He was talking to us. I don't feel good. I'm going to the hospital when I'll be back. I see y'all when I get back. Two days later, he was dead. So not just has it been, you know, a money thing. It's also an emotional thing. So it's a lot that goes into why we are striking on Monday. It's not one specific thing. It's a multitude of things. And if we don't stand up for something, we gonna keep falling for people like Mark Berger. Where are you? He's owner of our company. Where are you? What have you did for your employees to make this transition smooth? You haven't did anything for us. And at the end of the day, your doors to your company are still open. And why are they open? Because of us hardworking, dedicated frontline workers. How many people have been affected by COVID-19 in your your nursing home? Well, I, I know we hold less than 110 and like 50 died. So this is, you know, this is important. This hit home in such of a, a crippling way to just come to work and you got to take care of these residents and you know they're going to die. You can see it in their face. Then they had to die alone. No loved ones, no family, just us. And I know 
the ones that were in their right mind at the time that they were taking their transition, they understood, you know, it's somebody here, but we're not the people that they want to be here. So he has been really, really emotional and devastating these last couple of months. So 50, at like half of the people there have died? Yes. Since March, people stopped dying or the deaths kind of fell off. I say around June, we took a, you know, it kind of ceased. But from March on up, I mean, yeah, these residents were dying. What about the workers? Um, Have any workers gotten sick? Well, we had a few um, co-workers that um, caught it, and they were out. Thank God none of them died, but it's still just still emotional because at the end of the day, COVID is still there. Yeah. Right now, what are your your demands? Are you demanding better safety protections at work, uh, hazard pay, or, or what are what are you asking from the management directly? We're for number one hazard pay. We received the two dollars from the government. Okay, thank you for that two dollars. But when the company actually had to give us that three hundred dollars. And that was, I believe, in April. I feel like the company blackmailed us as far as to get that $300. Because that $300 came with a stipulation. You could not miss one day for that whole month or you forfeited that $300 bonus. And I thought that was unfair. Because at the end of the day, if I had to work 29 days, my baby could have got sick. I could have had an extreme emergency. But you mean to tell me since I missed that one day and I've been in here for 29 straight days, I forfeit what should be entitled to me anyway. So he didn't give us any COVID pay. When COVID first struck, I worked on the third floor. I worked on the COVID unit. We had to sign this piece of paper every day, checking in, stating that we were on that COVID floor. We've been asking since then, what does this piece of paper mean? Because the owner of the company will not give us hazardous pay, will not give us a raise. He's like, take it or leave it basically. But I look at it like this. If I choose not to take it and I choose to go somewhere else, I go to the next 10 nursing homes. Mr. Berger owned them. So where do I suppose to get another job at when you buying up all the nursing homes in the city? Do you hope that people will learn some sort of lesson from uh, seeing what happened to nursing homes during COVID-19? Yes. Because of all the deaths, yes. I hope they learn that the world will surprise you every day. And now everybody has to be aware that anything could be around the corner. 
So since we had a taste of Corona and we seen something that hit so quick and so fast, it was so destructive. Maybe if, and I got willing that this never happens again, but you never know, have a better plan, have a better strategy for these residents to try to keep them safe, keep them alive, and keep the staff safe and alive. That was Monique Shields, a certified nursing assistant in Detroit, who had planned on striking on Monday and may still do so in the future. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the way that food processing plants, prisons, and care facilities have been at the center of the coronavirus outbreak. Prisons, so much so that apparently California is unprepared for its wildfire season this year because the prisoner firefighters the state usually relies on are too sick to fight fires, which is an utterly horrifying sentence that shows you how sick America really is. So anyway, today I'm interested in a UK story about a food processing plant a factory in Northampton, UK, where prepackaged sandwiches sold at Marks and Spencer's are prepared. Kevin Rawlinson and Abna Modin at The Guardian reported that bosses at the Green Core site where M&S sandwiches are prepared acknowledged that many staff were entitled to no more than the statutory sick pay rate of £95.85, as at countless workplaces around the UK if they followed instructions to self-isolate. That is £95 a week or a little over $100. So that statutory sick pay rate is, of course, more than some U.S. workers get, but it is certainly not a substitute for their actual wages, which leaves workers in the position of choosing whether to work sick or stay home and lose money. Ian Hodson, the national president of the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union, who you may remember from earlier episodes of this podcast for his work on the UK fast food workers mixed strike, told reporters, quote, statutory sick pay does not support people. And in a crisis like this, you can't expect people to try to survive on 95 pounds per week, end quote. According to Hodson, two workers from the plant were fired for traveling to work together when one of them had the virus. 292 people at the plant have tested positive for COVID-19, either through National Health Service testing or the plant's own testing. The plant management told reporters that workers who have to self-isolate are paid according to the terms of their contract, which could mean, again, just that statutory sick pay. They said that strict social distancing measures were in place at the plant. That apparently hasn't stopped the workers from getting sick. I find the story interesting because it reminds us that the assembly line hasn't gone away just because what we think of as manufacturing jobs, making things like automobiles or furnaces or whatever, have been disappearing for decades. Indeed, if, instead, companies that sell grab-and-go food also manufacture their, their sandwiches in an industrial manner in a big plant with thousands of employees. There are over 2,000 workers at the Green Corps plant. So what does all this tell us about work? and for that matter, about food. Workers at the fast food chain Bojangles went on strike on Wednesday. They staged a walkout to accuse the management of poor safety conditions, lack of supplementary pay for COVID-19, and low wages. At a branch of the iconic Chicken Biscuits franchise in Raleigh, the workers demanded that management provide two weeks of paid leave for all workers potentially exposed to COVID-19, that the restaurant be deep cleaned professionally, and that this be documented for the workers so they had proof and that the wages they were paid, which start below $10 an hour, be raised to $15 an hour, and that they be paid additional hazard pay for the risks they took on for working during the pandemic. I spoke with Lamika Moses, who works at Bojangles to support her three kids, about why she went on strike. 
Um, I'm basically on strike um, because of unsafe conditions of my workplace. Employees were notified by a paper on the bulletin board um, of positive tests for uh, one positive test for COVID-19. After we were hearing rumors that employees were testing positive, um, after me and another coworker saw the notice on the bulletin board beside the schedule, we ended up walking out. And that was August the 8th, and we had a, we've been on strike since. And so how many workers altogether are on strike? Three. Three at this, at this time. Have you brought these issues to the management, and have they responded at all? Um, I brought it to the attention of a manager that was on duty the day that I walked out. Um, he wasn't aware of the paper that was on the bulletin board, so he went to go read it. Um, I even, once I left, I reached out to Human Resources for Triart Foods, and um, I got a call back on the 10th, uh, which that's where, you know, I was told that it was a cleaning. Um, they notified three employees that were in close proximity to this individual. But, you know, anyone that knows how Bojangles operate, everyone is in close proximity to each other. There isn't a way to be six feet apart in that establishment. It's impossible. Um, but I was told that I wasn't in close proximity. But like I said, it's impossible not to be. Everyone is around everybody. Um, and basically, you know, that was what I was told. You know, they cleaned already. You know, the, the business has never shut down. They're you know, it's ran, been ran as usual, open and close on time. Basically, our demands are we want the store to be deep cleaned, professionally deep cleaned, and we want to see proof of that deep cleaning. Um, $15 an hour hazardous pay that we never received. Um, and also, we want the 14-day of pay for self-quarantine for any employee that has to self-quarantine that has been exposed to COVID. Yeah. I mean, do you feel safe at work? Do you feel, do you feel like you're in danger by going to work? Correct. Correct. I feel like I'm in danger. Um, and, you know, and I'm the type of person I go, I like sex, so I don't go off of speculation. So hearing the rumors, you know, I was like, okay, well, I hope this isn't true. But then when management denied it because of a Facebook post, that was another rumor when they denied it. It was like, okay. But then a few days later, it was, yes, there's one positive test. You know, I did, and then when I walked out, you know, this was two days after they said the store was clean. Um, so my whole thing is I don't feel safe at work. I don't feel like they have the workers' health and safety as a number one priority. Um and I just don't, I don't feel like, you know, enough has been done, you know, to protect us against this virus. And right now, um, what's the situation in the store with, uh, with serving people? Are, are, pe- are you doing, like, takeout only? You know, people come in. It's only three people allowed in at a time um, when they come on the inside. But a few other people come in. We have people come in and be real belligerent, don't have on a mask you know, things of that nature. But, you know, we try to keep, try to practice the social distancing, have places where they need to stand, 
you know, stuff like that. But it's it's a process. You know, sometimes the line, sometimes the line outside is just extremely long outside the door for people that want to come in and get their food. What are the wages like there now? I mean, how what's the starting pay at Bojangles? Um, I put, I was supposed to start at nine dollars an hour, but for some reason I was at eight twenty five. I addressed it, so right now I'm making nine fifty an hour. Mm-hmm. Are people allowed to take some kind of sick leave if they do get sick with COVID? And and do you have any health coverage in general? I mean, there is no health coverage for Bojangles. Um, there is no paid sick leave. If you're sick, you're just sick. Um, so, you know, it, it's always been, you know, even if someone is, has, has gotten sick or even gets sick at work, I even got sick at work one time and they did not want me to leave. You know, it's like they want you to stay no matter what. They want you to work no matter what. And, you know, and thinking back to the shirt that they have, risk it for the biscuit. You know, it's like, y'all really want people to risk their lives for a biscuit? And that was Lamika Moses, Bojangles worker in Raleigh, North Carolina. The United States Postal Service has faced crises before, but for the past few weeks, it's been at the center of an unprecedented political firestorm. The agency is now headed by a Trump appointee, Louis DeJoy, who many believe is bent on sabotaging the Postal Service from within. Meanwhile, Trump's attacks on mail-in balloting, which he has baselessly argued is extremely prone to fraud, have paralleled Postmaster DeJoy's aggressive effort to supposedly reform the agency's operations and make them more business-like. That includes the mysterious disappearance of mail sorting machines in blue mailboxes across the country, as well as restricting overtime hours. Postal workers have reported delays in mail processing, raising fear that the elections could be disrupted. And although DeJoy backtracked earlier this week and said that his reform efforts would be postponed till after the election, many remain deeply distrustful of DeJoy and fear he is pushing the agency toward the longstanding goal of many conservatives to privatize the Postal Service. I spoke with three postal workers in Tennessee, Washington, D.C., and Portland about what they're experiencing on the job, the current state of the postal worker unions, and how they feel about their usually low-key agency becoming a political lightning rod. First, I spoke with Alex Fields, a rural mail carrier in Tennessee. I've been a carrier for about three years now, um, and I had you know previous experience in the labor movement before that, so when I got this job, of course, I wanted to get involved with the union and so on, and then when the pandemic came, um, I started working with some other folks across the country who were uh, very concerned about how the post office was responding or uh, more accurately, I would say not responding early on to uh, the pandemic and safety concerns and things like that. So I I started a petition around uh, safety concerns and hazard pay and other stuff that kind of took off. And we used that petition and the contact list from it to build this Facebook group for postal workers called uh, COVID-19 Postal Workers Response or Postal Workers COVID-19 Response, um, which now has like 22,000 postal workers who are members in it. And so we sort of use that space and a series of like monthly or now weekly phone calls to, you know, respond to the obviously ever-changing situation at the post office. It started out, you know, about the virus and safety stuff, but uh, obviously in recent weeks and months, you know, the the financial crisis at the post office and now the the new postmaster general and his policies around slowdown and 
what I think basically amounts to, uh, you know, like an intentional uh, disruption of the functioning of the Postal Service um, have become the, the focus rather than the COVID-19 per se. Can you talk about sort of what were the major issues that you came across that inspired you to form that network? Was it simply things like lack of personal protective equipment or um, were, were there other issues that, that people are experiencing? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's been uneven from place to place and also the, the situation changes from, I mean, even week to week. But, you know, when I started that petition, this was back in March, you know, pretty early in the pandemic. And at first we weren't really, at least where I am, and I think from what I've heard, you know, on social media and from other postal workers, I think this is probably true elsewhere. There really wasn't much of anything coming down from uh, from management at the post office about protection. Um, I mean, there were, we discovered when looking that there had been uh, a memorandum of understanding signed between um, management and the unions around personal protective equipment, but that hadn't translated to it being available in most places. Um, so it was, you know, on paper, they were supposed to be providing masks, gloves, and so on, but what was being reported everywhere is that they, you know, they weren't, and if you asked for it, they would be like, you know, we'll get back to you, and maybe a few weeks later it would show up, and maybe it wouldn't. So, yeah, I mean, it was basic stuff like that at first, and also just a you know, uh, issues around sick leave, um, hazard pay was something that a lot of people were talking about early on. I mean, still to some extent, you know, because we everything was just sort of up in the air and we were, you know, looking at a fire. So we didn't know what, what to expect to happen and um, we didn't have provisions around, um, you know, not like lower seniority tier postal workers don't even have sick leave in many cases. Uh, I don't have any sick leave. I don't get it uh, yet. And even those who do, you know, it's like if you've used it, what happens if you get a, a virus that you come into contact with at work and don't have leave to cover it? So just basic stuff like that at first. Much of that has been addressed. There have been, you know, partly through legislation, um, which covers all federal workers, including postal workers, and partly through um, some MOUs that the unions have signed. And we've just, you know, it's been a new issue every week, and we've just sort of been trying to respond as it comes and uh, keep up. With the news cycle, basically. Suppose the appointment of the the new postmaster general and the, some of the changes that have taken place so far in the past couple of months have been another blow, possibly kind of related, overlapping with the COVID nineteen crisis, but also related to just some ongoing issues that were happening at the post office uh, going back years, right? I mean, it is all related, and I think it's not not totally unforeseen. I mean, one of the things that um, some of us who are you know, have have experience with this sort of thing and had already have a bit of a developed political analysis around the Postal Service were saying, or even even before this stuff actually started appearing, was that, you know, this this crisis, uh, you know, the twin crisis of the disruption of functioning through the virus, um, in what the pandemic means in terms of, you know, yes, our our service is disrupted because many people are out sick or quarantined or have childcare issues, but also, you know, we knew that vote by mail was going to become an issue even before it became the headlines. I mean, it's just, it's predictable kind of things, but I mean, I think our prediction early on was that um, they were going to use this as a sort of like shock doctrine type moment to try to push through reforms, you know, private privatization uh, and outsourcing and, uh, you know, union busting basically. Um, in the name of, uh, you know, saying that we have to reform the postal service because of this financial crisis and, you know, and so on. And of course, that's what has been happening. What is the situation um, that is unfolding on the ground in terms of what workers are experiencing? I mean, is it is it really 
as it looks in, in the headlines with flatbed trucks wheeling away yeah. mailboxes on a daily basis? Or? Yeah, you know, it's it's actually somewhat hard to know even even as someone on the ground, because I think, you know, obviously they don't just like announce to us what they're doing exactly. Uh, I mean, in some cases, in some cases they do. Some of, some of the reforms, you know, like that hours are being shortened at offices and that, um, you know, we reformed the way that the, the, the districts are set up to simplify it and basically centralize power under the new postmaster. That sort of stuff was announced. Uh, but, you know, stuff about our, um, our, our machines being removed and blue boxes being removed and um, all this sort of thing. I mean, the people who are directly affected hear it and then the rest of us don't. And I think they've been, whether intentional or not, it has been rolled out in a way that makes it a little opaque to people on the ground because it's, you know, it happens in some facilities and not others, or it's uh, happens at different times in different places. So to really figure out what's going on, we've had to sort of, you know, talk to each other across the country and try to collect reports and see what really is happening or what's, what's more like sensationalism. And um, there's no, I don't know that we have a totally clear comprehensive picture, but I mean, it's definitely the case that, you know, they've been trying to shorten the hours um, that post offices are open. They have been, I think the biggest, the biggest thing uh, that's happened that I think is real and that I think has been the biggest cause of actual delays in the mail and this sort of thing is that at the plants, the processing plants, they have, they have been removing sorting machines uh, they have cut overtime. Um, I mean, on paper, they've they've been telling us that all overtime is over, and of course, that's if that was the case, the post office would close down because we function on massive amounts of overtime always. Um, but they have greatly cut it, and they've they've tried to cut it by you know reducing shifts, making fewer people in the plants do the work that should be you know operate machines that should be operated by multiple people. One person's doing it in many cases, and I think one of the big things that actually results in the mail being delayed is that they're being very strict about, you know, departure time. So when a truck's supposed to leave a plant with the mail and they're supposed you know, to take it around the station, uh, they're being very strict. You know, if you're supposed to be out at 7 a.m. or whatever it is, you're going to be out whether the mail is done or not. And so mail that isn't done by that time just doesn't, just doesn't go for the day. Uh, or if there aren't enough, you know, people working in the plant to, to process the mail, it just doesn't get processed and it gets left behind. And I've heard, um, you know, all over the country, reports of, of that happening uh, firsthand. Um, people saying saying that they're seeing you know mail just stacked on the floor of the plant, um, not being processed, and or people being you know uh, a truck driver tries to wait you know one minute or five minutes past his departure time because he knows that the mail is coming off the machine and about to be ready, and gets written up for it. That sort of thing. Do you think that cumulatively the changes that have happened so far could affect? processing of mail-in ballots um, in November? I think they could, although my, I mean, this is, I'm speaking only for myself here, but my take would be that really what they're trying to do is undermine confidence in the ability of the Postal Service to handle the mail. Not, not that the changes would actually disrupt mail processing on such a scale that the election results would be changed or unreliable or just impractical, but that, you know, you'll hear enough reports of, um, you know, the isolated cases where it is an issue or the anecdotal stuff about mail taking two weeks to show up, you know, the more people hear about this stuff, the less they trust the mail as a way to vote. Um, and I think it's, you know, basically an attempt to uh, take the steam out of the political move toward mail-in voting and, and make it um, politically less viable. That's that's my take. And also that, you know, all of this 
of course, from Trump's point of view, it may all be about mail-in voting in the election. But I, I think that given who the, the new postmaster general is, really, it isn't just about voting. It's uh, in the longer term, it's about privatizing and outsourcing. And uh, if you can undermine the service that we provide, and um, you know, it makes it that much easier to to, to you know push those things through in the name of efficiency and reform later. For years now, uh, people have been talking about this kind of manufactured crisis uh, surrounding uh, the finances of the post office, right? And and so every year, it's sort of like this uh, brinksmanship where, you know, it looks like the post office is going to go bankrupt, and then Congress comes in with a bailout, and there's a big to-do. Is is what DeJoy has been doing, is that really different from what's happened under previous postmaster generals and under previous administrations? Yeah, I mean, from direct experience, you know, I've only um, worked under two two postmasters. And, uh, you know, I started at the post office shortly after Trump was elected. So I can't, you know, speak to a longer view from personal experience. But, you know, yeah, from what I know from the history, I think absolutely it's just a continuation of the same strategy going back, you know, 50 years of trying to create, manufacture, as you said, a, a financial crisis at the post office that will pave the way for, um, you know, neoliberal reforms that uh, outsource and privatize in the name of uh, efficiency or, you know, being more businesslike or whatever. I think they've been trying that for a long time, and it mostly hasn't worked, um, in part because despite, you know, the 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 laws passed, you know, around 1970 and 2006 and so on that created financial burdens on the post office, we still actually managed to break even or have a make a profit through most of that time. Um, even after the, you know, pre-funding mandate that came in 2006, for the most part, we were financially solvent um, if you didn't count, you know, because at some point, 2010, 2011, the post office stopped actually paying the prefunding. And on paper, that means we're running a deficit. But in practice, it means we're, you know, um, we're in the clear most years and making ends meet. Um, that's changed now with the pandemic. And we're in a situation where we really are. There really is a, a billions of dollars shortfall in the budget that is a, you know, can't just be solved by. Um, you know, repealing the benefits prefunding mandate and these sorts of things that we like to talk about. I mean, that would go a long way, but um, I think we have to be demanding funding. It's a it's a public institution. It was funded uh, partly through federal money for the first what 200 years of its existence until 1970 or so. There's no reason it can't we can't go back to that, and it should. If it's if we consider it an essential service and a public good, then we should simply pay for it. And it, the question is, it shouldn't be whether it makes a profit or uh, breaks even, but what services do we provide and how important are they? As a member of a rank and file network of postal workers, I mean, do you, do you feel that um, uh, there's more that organized labor could be doing to uh, protect the USPS? Yeah, I definitely think the union should be doing more. And one of the, when we first kind of pulled together a, a network, our, our, I think, goal was, was mainly to push the union to act more because we don't, you know, we're not under the illusion that like, you know, 50 of us scattered across the country are going to like lead the fight to save the post office or something. Um, it was much more about trying to organize the effort to get the unions to um, take more militant stands, I think. And it's looked pretty different from unity union. like the uh, APWU, which is the union that mainly represents clerks, um, is by far the most left-leaning and militant of the postal union, but actually uh, arguably has the most left-wing leadership of any uh, any union in the AFL. Um, and they've, they've been really, if you look at statements that the APWU leadership has released, it's been really good uh, for the most part. 
uh, if you look at what they've actually done, it's a lot less, I think. I mean, they've, there, there's been a lot in APWU and also to some extent the other unions and pushing members to make calls to Congress and stuff like that. They've pushed that pretty hard. But in terms of actually taking direct action, uh, they've been much weaker. There was a day of action that the APWU sponsored uh, a couple months back that ended up having actions in a few dozen cities um, around, you know, asking for funding from Congress. That was pretty good. But even that, that, all, that was originally just going to be, they were going to have a, like a one action in DC and, you know, it was going to end in front of the Capitol. Um, but because of my read is that because of, because of the rank and file activity that just saw that date and then took it up and organized actions in like a dozen other, dozen other cities, um, calling it a day of action, APWU ended up saying, oh, okay, it's a day of action and encouraging more cities to do it. Um, so I think there has been some success in, uh, you know, rank and file activity, uh, inspiring a little more like, uh, ambitious, uh, I guess, approach from leadership. But I, I think we really need a lot more. And, uh, my own union, which is, not part of the AFL and is a, a very, I would say, conservative business-like union has been sadly missing from the struggle from the part, I think. I mean, you know, of course, individual rural carriers are involved, but uh, the union has maybe sent out like a letter in the newsletter every once in a while saying, yeah, it's probably you should call Congress. I mean, that's about, that's really about it. So there's not really, I mean, we, we you know, this, if there was ever a time for the postal unions to be like kind of wholesale mobilizing the base, um, to defend their jobs in the post office and our vision of what, you know, what this institution should be is now. And I think we're not really seeing that. What would direct action uh, look like in the context of the Postal Service? Many people might not remember that there, there was actually a massive postal worker strike uh, for eight days, um, yeah. half a century yeah. ago. Um, could that happen again or, or short of a strike? What can postal workers do to take direct action on the job? Yeah, well, I think... You know, you mentioned that strike. It's funny because I, I keep, you know, whenever people bring up the idea of a strike, I my first reaction is to say, like, we are just woefully unprepared for that. I mean, even if not just that people aren't, you know, prepared to vote yes or whatever. I mean, we just don't have the the, the infrastructure within the unions to even organize it um, or fund it or, you know, it's like we're, we're so far from there. But then on the other hand, that strike in the 19, you know, 1970 was a was a wildcat strike. Um that just started with a few people walking off the job without permission from their own local leadership and, you know, spread. And because, so it's, you know, who knows, uh, uh, something like that could happen again. And especially when people start to see that like the very future of not just their job, but the whole institution they work for is threatened. Like, well, who knows what people uh, might be willing to do that they would never have considered a few months before. So I don't really, I don't really believe in just like going around, like calling for a, a strike in a context where most postal workers aren't even prepared to like, take minimal like work slowdown type actions, but uh, we really, we really have to get there. I mean, uh, it's nice to see um, such an increase in like community groups and activists, uh, you know, showing up to flyer at post offices and organize demonstrations and car caravans and this sort of thing. But, uh, you know, ultimately the, the actual workforce um, is, is where the, the real power lies. And if we want to, if we really want to like be able to win big or like beat back, um, a full throttled attempt to privatize, then like we have to be prepared to, uh, you know, walk off the job strike if that if it comes to that. I mean, I, there have been, you know, there are cases where like we've heard, you know, where, uh, you know, workers were carriers or whatever were told that they needed to um, cut mail or whatever it is to, you know, follow through on these new policies and just simply 
collectively refused at a given station to do that. Um, and said, we're going to continue doing it the right way and deliver everything. And then management was like, well, okay, and basically backed off. So that's happened in a few places, but there hasn't been any, like, any sort of coordinated push for that type of action. You know, I've been seeing things on social media about how people are, you know, expressing appreciation for their local mail carrier and um, encouragement uh, for people to buy stamps to sustain the Postal Service, yeah. you know, through this crisis. Um, it all feels so, uh, like... There's not much we can do. Um, do you have suggestions on how ordinary people um, should be, uh, you know, might be able to take action in their communities uh, to protect their mail service and protect the USPS in general? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is complicated because it depends on what exists in your area. I mean, I think that what we really need um, is a, you know, a coalition that includes not just the usual sort of like left-leaning political actors or organizations, but like faith organizations, community groups, like, uh, you know, you, you come across like lots of uh, groups you would never think of in the, in the ordinary course of doing political organizing that rely on the post office because they mail stuff and they rely on the mail and like can become part of a coalition to defend the post office, even though they're, you know, like entirely apolitical organizations. And I think there's a lot of stuff like this out there. So I would tell people to, Think about like what groups you belong to, even if it's like the church, um, whatever sort of community organizations and how they can be brought to the table as part of a coalition that's you know, publicly defending the post office. Uh, and I think, you know, bringing at this moment, at least uh, bringing media attention. Uh, I mean, obviously, there has been a flood of media attention over the past couple of weeks, especially, but even still keeping it in the media, uh, in the public eye, what's going on uh, and just the messaging that, you know, we need a postal service that is a service just that and then we need to expand service rather than thinking of it like a business sort of how do we push that messaging and what sort of actions can you take locally to get that sort of thing into the media and then like especially during a a pandemic where like the 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 it's a little we we found i think through organizing that it's been working very differently with like you can you can have a demonstration with three people with signs in front of a post office and it makes the evening news like that isn't necessarily the case before there was a pandemic and a shutdown, you know? So, you know, you just like find a couple friends basically and make signs and, you know, like even that sort of very simple uh, low effort action, I think can get attention right now. And just the more of that we see, then I think the more it stays in the news and the more uh, we can help shape what the narrative is about the postal service moving forward. I mean, in the longer term, we need, you know, we need to can fight uh, and take direct action that is led by postal workers and the unions, but that's, there's work to get there. Um, and it's not, not in the next few weeks. I also spoke with Arian Brown at the Washington, D.C. headquarters of the USPS about the political controversies surrounding the USPS and what it means for the long-term sustainability of the agency. The appointment of the Postmaster General of the Joy was, was controversial, in my opinion. Um, the last Postmaster General, um, Meg Brennan, she, she said she was going to retire or resign late December of last year. And she stayed on for the duration while they searched for a new postmaster general, the board of governors, along with some consulting firm that was searching for this, you know, new postmaster general. Within the five months of them searching for a new postmaster general and, you know, PMG Brennan staying aboard, their final appointment was a, a Trump donator, you know, a Republican donator. So it's hard to for me to believe that it was a, a legitimate search over those five months. And they ended up with a Trump donor and a Republican appointee 
being a Republican donor to, to Republican campaigns as the Postmaster General. Um, that's, that's highly suspect. There were two Board of Governors, you know, longstanding Board of, board of Governors that resigned their positions as a result of what I understand was, you know, the heavy hand of the Trump administration on the appointment of the Postmaster General. Um, since um, Bejoy has been appointed, his, his first his first statement was that he was going to to work with the unions, work with all the postal um, interest groups, you know, the the stakeholders in order to make postal decisions. Well, this first decision that came out last month was, from what I understand it, a unilateral decision that he didn't consult with anyone about except maybe internal postal, you know, people at the headquarters level of the organization. So when he decided to make decisions about cutting overtimes and how the trucks ran, how the carriers ran, those are, you know, decisions that affected the flow of the mail. Um, the union, as far as the APWU, you know, we pushed back immediately because we knew, you know, this was detrimental to the service, it was detrimental to the public. So we've been fighting since then. And, you know, here recently, we have been able to get some of those pushed back. But it was um, only a suspension, you know, not a, a reversion to where the male standards were, you know, a while back. There was kind of a notable reversal um, or at least a walk back on, on DeJoy's part in his latest statement saying that he would suspend the changes that had been underway. Is that mm-hmm. a victory or do you think it's just kind of PR on their part or what do you think is going on there? <laughs> I think it's a mix. It's, it's a small victory in that, that they will not be removing any more of the blue boxes or, according to them, they won't be taking out any more of the sorting machines. So it's a small victory in that sense. But if you look at it, well, if they're maybe 80% done what they had planned to do, that means we've only prevented 20% of what they're doing. We want to walk back that entire 80%. These are hypothetical numbers, but we're trying to say, you know, we don't just want a stopping point from one day we want to actually go back to before all of the bad decisions that we feel delayed the mail were made and you know start from that point Mm -hmm. do you think that after the elections the public attention being paid to the post office right now will that will that continue um you know how will we sort of uh continue to keep on this uh ongoing discussion about you know how to how to save the post office um i would say um as far as the postal service being prepared to to handle the election um on average the postal service handles 500 million pieces of mail per day um and i think the registered voters number in the country is like um, below 300, 300 million, like 250, 250 million. So it's not a problem of volume that we can handle the election mail, but it is an issue of will, you know, the decisions from the top kind of like knee, you know, kneecap us and prevent us from doing what we need to do to handle the mail. It's not an issue with volume. You know, we can definitely handle the election mail from my, from my perspective. Um, and they think the major issue with the election is not necessarily on the postal side of issues, but it's on the the state election board side of issues where they're going to have to pay a lot of money for the the excess volume of people that may want to do absentee ballots and voting by mail. Um, They need to get federal funding so they can start the process of, you know, generating all the ballots, um, getting all the ballots out. I mean, 
the postal service wouldn't won't have an issue if the state and local election boards are allowed to do what they need to do and they need federal funding i think in the heroes act there's 3.6 billion dollars in federal funding for that purpose because it's been uh, identified as an issue that could hinder the vote by mail process um you are in the spotlight now um do you hope that uh that congress continues to uh to sort of keep you know maintain its oversight of of this agency and um, you know, regardless of who wins in, in November, um, you know, what, what would you like Congress to do in the long term? What types of uh, changes do you think would be positive for the Postal Service in, in future months or years? I mean, yeah, that, that is a concern that I have personally that, you know, the positions on the Postal Service that have the most popularity and the most concern right now are based around the election. And, you know, the statement by Postmaster DeJoy was that we're going to suspend these temporary um, operation policies until after the election. Well, right after the election is like peak delivery season for the holidays. So that is probably the worst time to actually start implementing any mail delay policy. Uh, We're hoping that as far as uh, from our politicians perspective, that they don't just concentrate on the postal side just for the election, which is an, uh, an important component but it's not the only component. We we need to get rid of the, the pre-fund mandate that's basically hurt the Postal Service for the last 15 years as far as how we look on, on paper financially. When you see all the money the Postal Service supposedly loses or is in debt, a lot of that is through the pre-fund mandate for retiree health benefits that have been spread out over a 75-year period but the Postal Service had to pay within a 10-year period. Uh, we're hoping the politicians can get rid of that. We had a, a bill passed in the House earlier this year that you know, got rid of the pre-fund mandate. Right when COVID hit, we had a bill in the Senate. But when COVID hit, you know, that kind of got lost in the, the entire pandemic um, issues. Has anything surprised you about the way the public has responded to the fears surrounding the, the USPS and what DeJoy is doing to it? Yeah, we, we've always been the, the most popular federal agency. I think the last polling showed the Postal Service was 91% favorable to the American public. That's a, that was a bipartisan, you know, poll. But the the amount of support from the public that I see out there now, I mean, I'm getting random emails from people that say, you know, I'm, I'm not an activist. You know, I'm not this, I'm not that. But what can I do to help the Postal Service? I want to be somewhere. I do not just want to write a senator. I want to get out and show face and be involved in some type of activity. So yeah, the public, I mean, the Postal Service is the one constant that's been around for most people their entire lives. The one thing through the pandemic that is, you know, everyone else is getting, you know, laid off and fired. We can depend on the post office to deliver, you know, the packages in our mail. So now that we're in a position where that one consistency seems to be threatened, People are really taking it seriously, like, you know, it's an attack on them personally. So it's a good feeling as a postal worker to know that we have so much support in the, the broader general public. Is there anything yeah. else you, you want to say about what you anticipate in the next few days or weeks in terms of protecting the USPS and, and its workers? Um, I would say on a, on a more broader subject, um, since the Postal Service is kind of in the limelight right now because of the situation we're in, that postal workers and postal customers aren't really aren't the only people that are you know suffering through this pandemic. I honestly believe that the congressional leadership on the Senate side needs to 
underway to pass a stimulus package for the American public. Um, postal workers are essential workers. You know, we've been dealing with the pandemic, but there are other workers out there that their jobs are being threatened. You know, transit workers in my area, you know, basically, from our understanding, have, have funding to be paid until November unless another stimulus package is passed. Um, airline workers, in the same scenario, um, the unemployed, you know, they need money. They're no it's not really safe to go back to work in the, in the public, so they have to pass, you know, real unemployment extension, um, moratoriums on evictions and stuff like that. So, you know, as the Postal Service is kind of in the limelight right now because of the status of the election, we can't take for granted that there are, you know, other parts of, you know, an American society that need help and should get help. And finally, I spoke with Larry Barnero, a clerk with the U.S. Postal Service in Portland, as well as a union steward with the American Postal Workers Union. In our plant, we moved into it in 2000, uh, June, uh, June of 2018. As of, as of today, uh, management's been moving the DBCS machines, those are the delivery barcode sorters, out, which is a routine thing, depending on the mail volume. Over the past month, uh, they've dismantled 14 machines, leaving hold on, a total of uh, 35 machines in place. What that does, it, it makes it uh, it makes it harder to run the mail. Uh, there's not as much flexibility for us to get the job done. You know, the bottom line is uh, it's all about service for us. The people I work with are very professional, and they're dedicated to uh, the jobs that they do and the jobs that we do directly benefits the American public. It's not called the postal service because we're there to make money. It's a service that we provide to the American people, which has been mandated by the constitution over the past few years. Uh, we've been fighting this battle for a while. We're worried about privatization of the post office. And, uh, in fact, I've got a, poster on my window from our EPW convention I attended several years ago. It says, don't privatize our public post office. Uh, corporations are looking to privatize that to reap the benefits or the money that can be made from uh, uh, urban postal routes and those urban services. There's a problem with that because what happens to rural America? If it's privatized, What's going to happen to those non-profitable routes and postal uh, stations that are out in the middle of uh, rural America that don't have the volume of mail, packages, and uh, the mail period uh, to necessarily support their existence? So it becomes not a service. It becomes privatized. It becomes a money-making venture. I'm a letter clerk. I work in a uh, processing distribution center here in Portland. Uh, We process uh, mail for uh, the state of Oregon and southwest Washington. All the mail, uh, the post office went through a a reduction of uh, processing facilities and they closed uh, one in Salem. And they closed closed one in Pendleton, which is in eastern Oregon. And all that mail, all the letter mail that gets processed, gets picked up, trucked to Portland, processed, then turned around and sent back out to the uh, stations for distribution. So we cover a, a very large area 
there's two other processing plants in Oregon. One is in Bend, and the other one is in, uh, I think it's um, Medford. Uh, and they and and they they get the mail that we produce or process, and they break it down for delivery to the customers in those uh, in the areas that they're responsible for. So it's rather interesting because uh, the current postmaster general is uh, the first one. I think it's in uh, ten or twenty years that was hired that didn't come from within the postal service to lead the organization. Uh, his, from the information I read, his background is in logistics, uh, trucking specifically. Uh, I don't think he has the knowledge that he needs in order to lead the organization because he's not familiar with it. Uh, I'm not saying he's not a smart guy, but you need to know how things work inside the organization you're leading. This is a service. You and I own the post office. We're the reason that the post office exists. Uh, if, If it becomes privatized, then who owns a post office? And the people that are shareholders and the corporations that may step in and take over. And that was Larry Guarnero, union steward and postal clerk in Portland. Before that, you heard Arian Brown, who works at the D.C. headquarters of the U.S. Postal Service. And before that, there's Alex Fields, postal worker in Tennessee. You're listening to Belabored a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg, I wish I'd written that. So if there's one person I want to read writing about teachers in America in 2020, or probably ever for that matter, it's Barbara Madaloni. The former president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association and friend of this podcast is working at Labor Notes now, and she has a piece up this week titled, Educators Demand Virtual Schools as Least Bad But Safe Option. And I literally made a noise when it came out because it dropped as I was literally emailing Barbara to interview her for my own forthcoming piece on the subject. And then I was like, oh, well, Barbara's already written a piece. Why do I even need to do this? She'll have covered everything. And no surprise, she has covered a lot. As Barbara wrote, quote, the Detroit Federation of Teachers has scheduled a vote to decide if educators will refuse to enter the buildings when school starts. After the West Virginia United Caucus held well-attended Zoom meetings to address concerns about reopening, The leadership of the West Virginia Education Association is insisting schools will open and continue even when positive tests are reported. In Arizona, a district outside Phoenix closed before it could open when too many teachers called out sick. The various strengths and weaknesses of unions are becoming more evident as the school year begins. We have yet to know the strength of educators' internal organizing or the ways fear might ignite wholesale disruptions as they simply refuse to enter schools." So, of course, the teachers are facing many, many options right now, and none of them, as she says, are particularly good. Barbara writes, quote, some hybrid models split the schedule for students, so fewer are in the buildings at any one time, and on their off days, students work remotely. Other hybrid models have teachers simultaneously teaching in-person and remote students. 
Some remote models call for synchronous learning, where students at home are expected to follow a regular school bell schedule as if they were in the classroom. Others allow for flexible schedules, small group or advising meetings, and asynchronous teaching with schedules determined by the educators who might Zoom with students in small groups instead of large classes or record lessons for students to view independently. The issue for educators is how much synchronous teaching there should be. Too much overwhelms students, families, and educators. And who decides? End quote. As she notes, the classroom, all of these teachers would agree, is an incredibly valuable place for children to actually be. Yet there are real safety risks that we've already seen as some school districts and universities have reopened only to close again immediately when a bunch of positive tests were reported. So yet many districts sort of spent the summer plowing ahead with plans to reopen as normal in the fall, and that has left them now underprepared for the reality they'll be facing. That last spring, of course, nobody could have predicted that we would have to close schools around the country and everybody would have to learn from home. And educators and school districts alike were trying to figure out how to do something they had never done before. But this summer could have been used to plan better. Instead, it seems the teachers were the only ones who were planning. Barbara notes, quote, Longstanding racial and economic injustices are starkly present. With remote learning, there is no shared classroom to add, act as an inadequate moderating influence. Student experiences from housing to internet access to the availability of adults are wildly unequal, end quote. One teacher from the Oakland Educators Association told her, quote, crisis distance learning is the least bad option because there is zero trust the district will put measures in place to keep everyone safe. Educators know that if remote is necessary, there must be flexibility for educators to have time to reach out to individual students, to connect to families, and to modify the curriculum to address students' needs. Canned curriculum and overstructured workdays will not do this, end quote. But the teachers are also using this moment to organize, as you, in fact, heard on the last episode of Belabored from Kevin Croson. Barbara writes, quote, through these meetings, educators are breaking through the idea that their options for coping are individual decisions to retire, ask for sick leave or quit. Instead, they're recognizing that how to teach this fall is a collective decision requiring collective action, end quote. And finally, of course, these school reopening fights are a concentration of everything teachers have been struggling around for years or even decades. Things like toilet paper and soap in the bathrooms, or having a full-time nurse, or, you know, smaller class sizes suddenly have a whole new resonance in this moment. As Barbara writes, quote, as more activist Rosie Frisella said, We have to use this to focus on underfunding. That is what this is about. The government has underfunded our schools, and now there is no money to open safely. My pick for ARG is American Rehab Chapter 8, Shadow Workforce, an investigative piece in the form of a podcast by Shoshana Walter at Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. One of the most curious terms in our law enforcement system is corrections. The word commonly applies to various institutions of incarceration and criminal punishment, which begs the question, what exactly are we correcting? Reveal's investigative series, American Rehab, examines one of the most extreme byproducts of the criminal legal system's obsession with redemption, an industry of vaguely religious drug rehabilitation programs that try to fix people's drug use problems by putting them to work. It's one part Foucault's Discipline and Punish, one part Reagan-era drug war, and two parts Victorian Workhouse. There's a long history of cultish rehabilitation programs that incorporate work regimens as a way of supposedly saving people's souls. 
One of the original models was the Synanon Foundation, founded in 1958 by ex-alcoholic Charles Dederich. They combined brainwashing psyops with coerced labor. In 1985, a court ruled that such work programs had to comply with the Fair Labor Standards Act and would therefore have to pay people for their work. It determined that the program's supposed religious affiliation did not exempt them from honoring their employees' basic labor rights. But religiously oriented charities have continued to skirt the law in their incorporation of work with rehab. The Salvation Army is one prime example of what happens when vulnerable people are dependent on an organization's aid, and the organization can in turn compel them to work and exert power over them as both a savior and a boss. At Senecor, a descendant of the work camp model of the earlier cultish programs, Reveal found that people in rehab, who are often there because of a criminal sentence, have been put to work doing rough jobs in various industries, such as construction and work at a bottling company. Injuries are common, according to people who've been through its intense work protocols. And the pay is often non-existent. The use of such unpaid labor occurred in hundreds of programs that purport to rehabilitate drug users, according to Reveal's investigation. Reporter Shoshana Walter found, quote, people have hurt their backs on the job. One person walked away with brain damage. At least three people have died. I've seen medical records and other reports confirming all of these incidents. Some workers got hurt because they didn't get the right training or protective equipment whether from the rehab-run business or from an outside company where they were sent to work. In some cases, their conditions would only get worse because they felt they had no choice but to keep working, unquote. In the case of one worker, Brendan Earle, the jobs got quite exotic, like dragging animal carcasses to the incinerator for the Memphis Zoo, and once moving a drugged bear. Earle recalled, quote, it was literally one of them situations where I was never able to say no, unquote. And that is the crux of these programs. By offering the workers redemption from their past sins of drug use, they are expected to voluntarily give their labor as a show of gratitude while they are provided with room and board at the rehab facility. But the hard reality of these programs is that they exploit the labor of some of the most vulnerable workers in the country. Senecor participants recalled feeling miserable, like their lives were devalued by this corporation that purported to be saving them while in fact they were being farmed out as free labor. Often, workers lacked personal protective equipment. One interviewee named Brittany claimed that she and other Senecor participants were forced to work in a place where there had been an outbreak of COVID-19, and despite requesting to return to the rehab facility, they were threatened with punishment if they did not stay on the job site. Brittany said, quote, Obviously, they don't care about the health of everyone in this place because they would have closed the door and made us stay in and not send us in and out, in and out, in and out. If you cared about our well-being, you wouldn't do that, unquote. But they did do that because, well, the aim of rehabilitation in this case isn't about caring for these people, but about promoting the idea and the image of rehabilitation and leveraging that moral pretense executed on the backs of workers for economic gain, political power, social prestige. Senecor has built its reputation as an embodiment of the Christian canard that work has an inherent redemptive value. This peculiarly American form of the Protestant work ethic, by way of rehab, is based on the moral calculus that one can offset one's sins with subjugation to an employer, that submitting to work is somehow submitting to a higher power. The expose of Senecor is kind of a dark mirror on the way American capitalism works and the way it feeds off of reinterpreted biblical teachings. How many times are we told by politicians that moving people from welfare to work is virtue and the moral imperative of government? Work programs have always been a part of the prison system, of course, and we have seen chilling examples of work camps used in the Holocaust as well as in Japanese concentration camps in the U.S. during World War II. It's routine to make incarcerated people work for pennies an hour just to keep them busy or to reinforce 
reinforce their oppression. But turning a rehab program into basically a labor trafficking enterprise really takes it to the next level. These people aren't behind bars, but they are burdened by the stigma of past drug use. The perverse rationale is that the worker should feel grateful for this treatment. They should feel lucky even to have a job. Isn't the reward of sobriety enough? Why demand pay? Most working people aren't toiling under such a coercive system, but every day we are subtly plied with this kind of moralizing psychological pressure. We're told we should feel grateful even to have a full-time job when economic times are tough. We should cling to a crappy job because it offers us health insurance. Jobs are hard to come by, and unemployment is so miserable. Why demand a union or a living wage or a discrimination-free workplace when you should feel lucky to be employed at all? This peculiar kind of labor Stockholm syndrome seems to be an American specialty. In the land of the free, working for free is somehow seen as noble if you come from the ranks of the undeserving poor. But organizations like Senecor show that labor itself doesn't rehabilitate. It could actually make things much worse when the notion of social redemption precludes economic justice. And that's a wrap for this episode of Belabored. Thanks, as always, to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. And you can check out all of our archives at DescentMagazine.org. Don't forget to go to our Patreon if you want to become a monthly sustainer of this venture and support our journalism. And if you have any feedback, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you if you are a pissed-off postal worker with some thoughts about efforts to privatize your service. If you're a teacher fearful about your school's reopening in the fall. If you're a fed-up fast food worker dealing with poor safety conditions at your restaurant or a healthcare worker who's been pushed to the edge by the pandemic and is thinking about going on strike. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at hashtag belabored or write to belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 